0: You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, the NOM. Stayed in bed all morning just to pass the time. There's something wrong here, there can be no denying. One of us is changing, or maybe we've just stopped. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel comic series The Nam, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm heading into yet another three-part storyline, and this one is special because it's bannered as The Punisher Invades The Nam." Yes, it's time for another crossover with the main Marvel Universe as we get to the return of Frank Castle. Our song this time around is It's Too Late by Carole King, which is from her landmark 1971 album Tapestry. The song, which was a double A side with I Feel the Earth Move, spent five weeks at number one of the Billboard Hot 100 during June and July of 1971. The album spent 15 weeks on the top of the Billboard album charts and would win the Grammy for album of the year with It's Too Late winning record of the year. And You've Got a Friend, which King wrote and recorded, but was also a number one hit for James Taylor in 1971, one record in the year. King also won Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. I personally love this album. I happened to find it while searching through records at my local Goodwill store and picked it up for 50 cents. 50 cents definitely well spent. I've heard a number of these songs on the radio over the years, especially when riding in the car with my parents, and it was really cool to hear them all in one album. Tapestry isn't a hard one to find, and I'm sure that you can get it on Cheap uh, on the cheap and iTunes if you want it digitally. And even if Carole King isn't your preferred artist, I would go out and get it. It's that good. Speaking of going out and getting it, Marvel really, really wanted you to go out and get this book because they put the Punisher in it once again. And I realize it's not something exactly the smoothest segue, but you have to kind of admit that it's not an easy transition from Carole King to the Punisher. Anyway, our story is called Noon Black is Midnight, and our creative team is Chuck Dixon writer, Kevin Kabasik pencils, Jimmy Palmiati inks, Phil Felix letters in color, Don Daly editor, Tom DeFalco is your editor-in-chief. The cover is by Jorge Zofino and features Frank Castle holding a gun and swinging it at a couple of VC soldiers, two of whom are lying face-first on the ground, and another who is coming at him with a knife. In the box in the upper left-hand corner, we see a mugshot of Frank in uniform, as opposed to our usual grunt, and in the UPC box in the bottom left corner is the POW MIA symbol. The cover is definitely action-filled, a la I don't know if many people would have paid attention to it if it had not been for the Punisher logo at the top of the cover above the book's title. Plus, if you're trying to lure the Punisher's fans in there, you need to have something to let them know what's up because there's no Punisher's skull to be found anywhere since he won't be the Punisher until a few years after his time in the war. The issue was released on February twenty fifth, 1992, with an April 1992 cover date. We're still at the price of $1.75, which I said would be there until we finish the series with issue number 84. We open the middle of a firefight. Someone is trying to get an evac, but the LZ is too hot. A soldier is down, and someone is telling him to hang on. The guy who is down is begging for morphine, and the medic says that he doesn't have any. But in order to distract him from the pain, he says, I'll tell you a story. Remember that private I told you about? A big guy named Castiglione? Yeah, the wounded GI says. Here's the part I didn't tell you, the medic replies and begins the following story. It was his third day in country. Kid was still a teenager and had sand from Paris Island in his boots. He was primed and eager. He wanted the bush. Tough kid from Brooklyn, never ran from a fight. But he was never in a fight like this one. They were choppered in to support a convoy stalled by VC on a supply road. They never got to see the road. Castiglione was too dumb or too cold to be scared. Maybe he was too scared to be scared. You ever feel like that? He went on automatic. He did the job they paid him to do. He covered his approach. He found them. He took them out. He punished them. He kept it together and got the survivors out of the bad place. Every one of those men would be dead if not for Castiglione. He's done good. But doing good in the Corps isn't always a good thing. Getting noticed can put you in the way of all kinds of ugliness. So he gets back to base and he comes across uh, Makuta, who is uh, the officer in charge of the of the base, and he gets put back out on patrol. He says, "I'm just, I'm just in country." He's like, "Well, we turn into veterans real quick, and they get him out of there." So this Brooklyn kid barely gets his land legs back and he's rucking through the deep woods again. He starts to wonder if he'll have to stay awake the whole 13 months. See, in the army, a tour is one year, but the Leathernecks have to be one month tougher than everybody else. The Marines have seen too many John Wayne movies. The patrol's function was hazy. They were escorting two grunts way out past the wire, and then these guys were going to proceed on alone. They could be forced recon guys or snipers or even special ops. Nobody would say, and Castiglione didn't ask. But they didn't look the part. Looked like a couple of of scare kids. Some sounded like they knew they weren't coming back. It was either Street Smarts or Castiglione was going Asiatic. But something about this whole thing made him squirrely. Mortar attacks were as regular as the dailies at Firebase Phoebe. The local grunts insisted that this AO was only lukewarm. The kid figured out this was just one more thing he'd have to get used to, like the spooky patrol they were just on, like going without sleep. Colonel comes up again to him and he says, he gives him another mission to talk to somebody. Like there's a lieutenant arguing with a uh, with a Vietnamese local. Frank goes out there. He wasn't really needed. Lieutenant Maxwell spoke passive enough French to speak to the village honcho. Ciclione just figured that Makuta was breaking his chops. He was three days in country, though it seemed like three years. And these were the first locals he'd seen, except for the others he'd killed. And he asks "What's going on?" And the lieutenant says, "The friendlies say a bad wind is coming. Lots of he's seen this parish. They're getting while well, they're getting as good. So how are we supposed to protect these little savages? That they won't stay put." But what if the friendlies were right? They lived here, didn't they? Know what's up? There were lots of things he didn't understand yet. He goes back to seeing Macuda, who's opening a, free, who's locking up a cooler. Uh, with a padlock, and then uh, he reports the whole thing about the village um, leaving and carrying all their gear with them. He wonders if they're actually right. Makita says, Bull, they heard it from Charlie. In other words, they're, they're being tricked, and he tells them to, get, to go to sleep. Frank dreams about him walking along with his girlfriend in Brooklyn while bombs fall. He's then woken up. He's Groggy, one of his friends, gives gives him uh, a couple of amphetamines, and then uh, they're back out in the field. The kid's game. He's all marine. He shakes off his fatigue and carries on. But he's still got that crawly feeling in his guts. These guys were diddy-bopping, moving through the brush st- like they were on a stroll. This is all wrong. So they stop for some rest, for some food. Frank's got a bad feeling about this. And, and then he asks... Um, you know, I read enough to know this is a bad This is bad news. I know you're right, but that doesn't make me wrong. Uh, if there's anything in the area of Creek, the guy's like, there's no Charlie in this parish. It's been swept clean for months. He says, is that what those recon guys are for, the ones we left off yesterday? And uh, they kind of give him crap for being new, and then all of a sudden things start firing. The kid didn't want to be right. The fire comes from every direction at once. It seemed that way anyway. Green tracers came down on them from the trees along the ridge. Just like he said they might. While they were walking, the little man had slipped all the way around them and tricked out the trail behind them. The non-breaks the rules, but it don't break all the rules. Charlie wasn't picnicking. Nobody was getting away easy. He did read all the books. He knew the Vietnamese had been fighting our enemy over, or one enemy or another, for two thousand years. They were born soldiers, fierce-minded, determined, motivated. Castiglione respected them their history book was just one long war he wasn't about to fear them they were just like doggies to him hit and run and they wouldn't they don't be there when they shoot back he figured their greatest concentration was downhill he'd move up the incline tread his way through them no thoughts for this patrol they'd scattered at best he'd draw some of them off the heat off them in the heat of it all charlie was as confused as everybody else Everybody, "'Every firefight is like a henhouse fire. "'You can put sense to it after it's over, "'but even then, it's all science fiction. "'The man was small, light, as a child. "'He's going hand-to-hand with the guy, but tough. "'The kid from Brooklyn was close enough "'to feel his breath to smell the sweat on his clothes. "'This wasn't a f- war anymore. "'It was a fight, and Castiglione did what he had to do.' "'He stabs the guy. "'Then the sky fell. "'A hot wind sucked the air out of his lungs. "'Somebody must have called, back the, called the gun bunnies back at Phoebe.' All kinds of ordnance was raining down on that hillside. A high-explosive, incendiary, the works. Somebody was a believer now. The AO went from lukewarm to red-hot, just like that. He was all alone in the world as giants walked the earth from the other side of that hill. No rifle, no contact with the patrol. He'd find a place to hold up and make his way back to Phoebe when it got dark. That was before he found the KIAs. The Lerp guys from the day before, each one shot through the head and stripped gear and tags. And as he's looking at the body... He hears Well they this your luck your unlucky day, cousin. And you turn around to see one of the other Americans one of those fellow socials with a gun to his head. You just went through all that just to see something you shouldn't. Looks like you get to go missing in action, just like these two. To be continued. You know, for a crossover with the Punisher, this one's actually pretty decent. And just like with the first story, this is a little too much action movie compared to what we're used to. But one of the things I like is that the events of this do not affect or take place within the continuity of the comic book in any way. In fact, the three Punisher stories, this one, the one from issues 52 and 53 and the ones that are collected in the Punisher and the Nom: Final Invasion, have a continuity all into themselves. If you actually want a huge summary, look at all, like a look at all three of those storylines as one big story. Um, I guested on episode 75 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which is over on the Two True Freaks Network. And in that summary, I do give an explanation as to why Frank's last name is Castiglione and not Castle, which is something I will get to in a later comic. Here, however, I'm going issue by issue. And back to what I like about this story, which is mainly that you can not only skip this, but it seems like Chuck Dixon is writing this with that knowledge. Furthermore, He's writing this with the thought that a guy like Frank Castle really would be out of place in a book like Denam, especially the Frank Castle we see here. This framing device is essentially out of a bedtime story. Yes, it's a medic telling a story to a wounded soldier in order to make the guy feel better, but you get the idea. Personally, I like this because war stories, as we have seen, can be exaggerated. That's what we have here. It's not that Frank didn't exist or exist within the confines of some urban legend, but it's like any other story... You keep telling it and the more crazy stuff becomes truth in a way. So Frank still gets to be the punisher in a sense as he's just the living embodiment of an action figure, the guy who's the hero or who can take anyone, he's not dirty or corrupt. Last time we saw him facing off against the player on the other side in a way because he was tracking a major sniper, he was tracking a sniper who was just as good as he was. This time he's on Firebase Phoebe and seems to be younger. I can say that this story does take place before the one in issues 52 and 53. He's not exactly a greenie. He still knows the entire manual and knows how to react to situation. He's also up against the superior officers who are up to no good, as we see in the cliffhanger. And I'll say it again, if this were not framed as someone telling someone else a war story, I'd be a lot more dismissive of it. But even the artwork helps the fictional war story aspect. Kevin Kabasik has won inking credit and won penciling credit before this, so he's a young artist or at least the new artist at this point, and there simply are aspects of his style that reflect the aesthetic of the early 1990s. There's a lot of use of varied camera angles, lots of close-ups on faces or parts of faces, lots of people screaming when firing. When we get to the page that basically recreates the cover, which is the knife fight with the VC soldier, we get a pretty dynamic eight panels that places it's definitely in the 90s and has a Joe Quesada type of feel to it. We get Frank and the VC tumbling down a sandal on Frank's chin, the eye of the VC soldier with a knife sticking out of the panel, a shot of one hand stabbing the other with another hand out, probably reacting to being cut, Frank's hand or the VC's chin while the VC holds the knife and looks very menacing, and then a wide shot from below of Frank killing the VC by obviously shooting him in the head. But since it's from below, we only see the guy dropping the knife and a black spray of sorts behind him while Frank lunges at him and there's an inset panel with the sandals of the V.C. soldier and Frank in the shadows behind him. It's a pretty violent scene, and definitely pushing what I guess you consider the Comics Code envelope of the time. Granted, around this time the comics were becoming more and more violent, and the Comics Code Authority really was on its way out at that point. With that being said, it's about as 90s as we've gotten so far. Art-wise, character-wise, story-wise, this is everything that you'd expect in a Punisher book or in a kind of low-budget action flick made by Canon Films. It's not what you're used to in the title. Luckily, if you're doing a read-through and don't care for the Punisher stuff, and you want to skip it, you can definitely skip it. I'm not, because I'm doing a complete run-through here, obviously, and that means I have two more issues of the storyline to go, and I'll be tackling part two in the next episode. But right now, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back with historical context covering June 1971, as well as letters and ads. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Dr. Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Atom, Mr. Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah ha ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network want to make something of it? Okay, so this time around, I'm looking at June of 1971. I'm always using Wikipedia. I'm using the history place for my sources. June of 1971, during a commencement speech, Senator Mike Mansfield labels Vietnam a tragic mistake. On June 1st, the Vietnam veterans for a just peace claiming to represent the majority of United States veterans who served in Southeast Asia speak against war protests. On June 13, 1971, the New York Times begins a publication of the Pentagon Papers, a secret defense department archive of the paperwork involving decisions made by previous White House administrations concerning Vietnam. Publication of the classified documents infuriates President Nixon. On June 15, Nixon attempts to stop further publication of the Pentagon Papers through legal action against the Times in U.S. District Court. And on June 18th, the Washington Post begins its publication of the Pentagon Papers. The Times of the Post now become involved in legal wrangling with the Nixon administration, which soon winds up before the Supreme Court. Uh, On June 22nd, a non-binding resolution passed in the U.S. Senate urges the removal of all American troops from Vietnam by year's end. And June 28th, the source of the Pentagon Papers leak Daniel Ellsberg surrenders to police. June 30th, the United States Supreme Court rules 6-3 to in favor of the New York Times and the Washington Post publication of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, the Pentagon Papers is an interesting story, and there's a really, really good book by Steve, uh, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, called Steve Scheinkin, called Most Dangerous. It's actually a young adult biography uh, or a young adult history book. And I, I read it because I'm taking a, a course in young adult literature for grad school. But it is is basically a biography of of Daniel Ellsberg, really focusing on the Pentagon Papers, and goes through the whole detail of how he was, uh, well, he was you know the the in fact he ends on because it was a most it was a pretty recently published book. Uh, he ends the book talking about Edward Snowden. So there's a there's a definite through line from Daniel Ellsberg to Edward Snowden. And Ellsberg was working at the Defense Department, working at the Pentagon. And uh, seeing these reports cross his desk and and eventually got essentially fed up and fed up with the war and started making copies of the papers and distributed them to various newspapers in the country. So uh, probably knowing in the back of his mind that uh, once one published them, they would, you know, get sued so he had this network of how can you really stop this leak when there's so many of them and there's some really interesting stories about um you know what nixon and the nixon administration were trying to supposedly do uh some of the men who were eventually involved in the watergate burglary were sent to try to discredit ellsberg to smear him in some way or another Uh, they refer to them as the plumbers who are going to start stop the leaks and it really is a great profile of Ellsberg and the anti-war movement and Vietnam and the Vietnam War itself. Uh, so it's called Most Dangerous. It's by Steve Scheinkin, and I would highly recommend it. Um, even, like I said, its its target audience is middle and high school students. Uh, so, But it's really, really well researched, very straightforwardly presented. It does not talk down to its audience. And as a result, it's really, really quick and, and really fascinating read. So i pick it up. Uh, one more event. In June 1971, uh, George Jackson replaced William Colby as the head of Cords. So let's look at letters and ads. We actually do have uh, a letter column this month. And we have Tim Statz of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who, served, who, according to his address, served in Nam from 68 to 69. He says, hey guys, that was sure some sniper rifle, we featured in issue number 65. On the cover, he's shooting a bolt-action rifle to equip with a full barrel and telescopic sights. On page 1, he's holding a 762 millimeter SVD Dragunov sniper rifle, which is described as being able to, quote, cancel your go-home ticket from 3,000 yards. Sadly for the little man on the days killed, he left the fancy weapons at home and was carrying a 7.65mm M1936 CR39, an ancient French relic of a rifle. This is kind of on any other weapons you forgot to mention. I don't know what part of the NAM you serve, but in Second Corps, your average VC tended to be a one rifle terrorist and happy to hit anyone within 200 yards, let alone 1.7 miles. And uh, they say, well, it's obviously not your average VC, Tim. Elvis. Orton, is that Uncle Elvis? I think it's Uncle Elvis. He would love to see Russ Heath become the regular title the regular artist. Um, he says it's most overlooked one of the most overlooked folks that work in the medium. He says that they're still slicing over the mountain, mountain of mail that Heath the Heath issue solicited. He says Heath, Sam Glansman, John Severin, maybe two more guys from the Creme de la Creme of American War illustrators were trying to catch them, any of them for an issue with the NAM. Sixty-five demonstrated every now and then it pays off. Joe Byers of Macedonia, Ohio, wants to know what Michael Golden's up to. And they say, right now, Michael Golden is thinking about maybe having that cold slice of pizza that's been hanging out in the fridge. No, actually, he's diligently working the covers for the four-part series Cops the Job, which goes on sale in early April. It's co-written by Larry Hama, who developed the nom here at Marvel, and Joe Jesko. And the art chores will be handled by Mike Harris and Jimmy Pagliotti, who penciled and inked, respectively, fifty-two and issues 52 and 53. It's uh, to police work with the Namas to war. If that makes any sense, you know what we mean. There is a long uh, letter from B.A. Parcells, who's in the Army Reserve from Lansing, Michigan. And he says, Here are some of my thoughts on Name Withheld's question as to why we did so much better in Iraq than in Vietnam. Terrain. Namas mountainous, heavily jungled, the few poor roads. The only easy transport is aircraft. Iraq is a flat, open desert perfect for all matter of heavy equipment, including tanks. The American Armed Forces are based on large numbers of tanks and mounted infantry, supported by an Navy and Air Force. The Iraqi Army is based on the same model, while the Vietnamese Armed Forces were a light or guerrilla force, small troops of foot soldiers armed with rifles and such. Guerrillas and cover go together like peanut butter and jelly. In fact, the former requires the latter. Guerrillas out in an open, flat landscape can be toasted by their opponents in no time. As cover gets heavier in Vietnam, like in Vietnam, the advantage is swing back toward the guerrillas. Our army is designed for and does best against another heavy equipment-based army, like the former Soviet army. Guess what? Iraq is based on the Soviet army model. On the other hand, in Nam, our mechanical heavy army was faced with an elusive guerrilla force hidden deep in terrain that our equipment could barely make its way through. Even aircraft, which could fly about easily, could not see the guerrillas through the thick jungle triple canopy. One reason we started using defoliants like Agent Orange. We were like a guy in it with a hammer trying to swat a butterfly. Not as easy as it looks. As your friends' comment that one cause was that the troops were doing drugs, that, sh- that they sure didn't start out doing drugs, as many of them never did do drugs. Consider the extreme frustration of trying to deal with an enemy that their army was totally unsuited to fight. That they were further hobbled by fool politicians who kept changing the military object- objectives on them. What military objectives, some vests may ask. And that maybe, just maybe, some of the soldiers who did do drugs did so as a reaction to the miserable conditions over there, not as a cause of them. One more point the folks who ran the Iraq War had learned from and were absolutely determined not to repeat the mistakes made in Nam, which included wrong equipment for the terrain, politicians trying to run the war, not letting the generals do so, failing to set a single and clear objective to the war, piddling around and dragging things out instead of getting it over in one big initial push. In fact, the Iraq War was run almost perfectly opposite to NAM. Contrast doesn't get much clearer than this. The editor says, NAM readers, what say you? Comments, rebuttals, etc., etc. Then we have NAM notes. Uh, LZ is a landing zone. VC is Viet Cong. CP is command post. Daily, daily daily. Anti-malaria pills. AO area of operations. Diddy bopping, walking through the bush recklessly. Pogue is a new guy. Charlie is in Victor Charles. Phonetic spelling for VC. See above. And lerp long range reconnaissance patrol. Ads this month we have the Terminator 2 Judgment Day on NES and Game Boy. Oh wow, we're definitely in the early '90s. Uh, Uncanny X Men trading cards. We got Wolverine th- ripping through a pack. I had a lot of these cards. These were really cool cards. I remember loving them and mainly because they were they were drawn by the uh, you know the. The image, the image guys, etc. Um, meet Fleer's new superhero, The Rockets. Uh, and Fleer's baseball cards, some 2000 Roger Clemens cards that are signed by him. Uh, he was still in the Red Sox at this time. We have, ooh, American Comics is having a warehouse sale and I think it's Mary Jane Watson in a bikini, which I think that's from the 1992... Marvel Swimsuit Special, and that's probably like Joe Jusko or somebody having drawn it because it looks painted. Um, She's in a very 90s looking, early 90s looking bikini. She's saying, send $1 for our full color catalog or free with any order. Uh, There are grab bags. There's a Batman grab bag. Ten great Batman items. An investment grab bag. I love this. Ten different comics, lots of number ones because... This is an investment. They're selling uh, cards. For instance, you've got uh, DC Comics car- DC Cosmic cards. The box for thirty dollars. The Marvel swimsuit special is three ninety five. I think the new Hotmu is three ninety five each. The Robin two collector sets are out. Number one, number two, number three, and number four. All f- all the different colors plus a hologram card. Uncanny number two eighty one and two eighty two. By Byrne and Protatio, these first printings are... Blazing hot! The X-Men number one set for its limit two for $10. Yeah. Youngblood number one for two fifty. And Yeah, they're just, they're doing the... Oh, let me see if there's anything. The Marvel Masterworks are $34.95 apiece. There's nothing that's, like, really crazy expensive. Oh, American Entertainment. I'm going to miss you when I'm done with this series. We have the classic Marvel Tees one. Um, we have an East Coast Comics ad. Stan's Soapbox and Bullpen Bulletins this month. Stan saying, remember this date, October 91. It was the biggest, most important months in the Halcyon Days of Mighty Marvel. What made it so important? Um, and he says, oh, James Cameron is directing Spider-Man. There you go. <laughs> Uh, it's, that's a whole, oh God, that's like a whole thing. Spider-Man took so long to get to the screen. It was just ridiculous. And I remember when James Cameron was attached to this, uh, I remember reading about stuff like this in the wizard magazine back, uh, back of wizard magazine with their column on movies where they would have like reports of movies and things and they would be like, all sorts of crazy rumors and stuff i'm talking about february apparently kevin kabosik is going to be doing barbie i think he's just being silly hildy mesnick who is the editor who is one of the editors is taking over barbie uh yeah so we'll we'll see what's did. And kabosik's going to be the assistant editor so yeah since he's a big non-person they're making jokes about G- um gi joe etc etc yeah, yeah. There's uh, two ad- three ads that feature somebody in targets for under the big guns. You've got Punisher Warzone. It's a jungle out there. You need all the help you can get. Two-fisted big guns. Mo- action monthly from Marvel. Um, you have Cage. Two-fisted pulse-pounding action from the world's best hero for hire. On sale monthly. Then we have uh, Greatest in Conventions. And we have Death's Head 2. The ultimate bounty hunter is no more. Get ready for the supreme killing machine a new four-issue limited series on sale in, Mar- in January for Marvel Comics. Yeah, definitely hyping up the violence, hyping up the hyping up the 90s, although we've got 1991 prices in 1992 for the subscription ad. Those Three Musketeers ads are back, and the back is score baseball cards, get all the action in 92. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next part of this Punisher storyline. Um, until then, you can go to the blog, uh, you can leave a review on iTunes, you can go to the Facebook group, And as always, thanks for listening and take care. The end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders, and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash Podcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which is a division of the De Manzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other 2 True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at 2 true anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nog.